The Money Show. With Bruce Whitfield on 702. 702. Money Show brought to you by APSA CIB, proud winners of the 2023 Global Finance Awards. APSA is a registered FSP. Welcome to this public holiday eve. We have got uh, plenty of uh, disruption over the next five days in terms of what's going to be expected from you at work and what's going to be expected from you at home. Tomorrow is the public holiday. Many people who can afford to do so have taken Friday off as well to extend it into what is going to be probably the most substantial period of time you can take off taking the least amount of leave possible um, uh, before the end of the year. It's really the last big one. April is notoriously disrupted by public holidays. And this year has been quite a spectacular series of disruptions from Easter being at the beginning of the month. And, of course, then our traditional uh, Freedom Day, the the middle day of, was it the middle day or was it the first day of three? But certainly we had several days of elections in 1994. Um, the 27th is counted as the official day of the elections back then. Um, and uh, we are coming up to very significant anniversaries, of course, of that. Uh, this is the 29th anniversary of that historic day in which I spent the day in Finterdorp of all places. Um, uh, to a remarkably peaceful environment, going to Paul Kruger's old farmhouse uh, because Eugene Terreblanche was uh, delivering a message there. He beat up an American report. Well, his people beat up uh, a black American reporter and it led to significant diplomatic schism. Um, uh, up until that point, the AWB had been fairly well behaved when it came to dealing with, with black reporters. But uh, tensions had run high, emotions ran high, and the sky was, was roughed up, and we all packed our bags and left. And uh, kind of left <laughs> Eugene to blush, wondering what on earth had happened. He came to a messy end ultimately, didn't he? But yeah, it's uh, lots of memories of that time in 19. 19- 94. Uh, if I am correct, my producers have arranged for a discussion on uh, the 29 years of freedom and what sort of freedom has been achieved. I think it's a good day to reflect on that tomorrow and we'll pick up on that most certainly. The Money Show. Business Unusual. Business Unusual brought to you by Workforce Staffing for a thriving workforce partner with one of South Africa's top employers for 2023. Kevin Dyke is the head trainer at Missing Link. Missing Link is a specialist producer, provider of services to anybody who needs presentations built and why regular and candid feedback is important at a workplace. Clear, you say, Kevin Dyke, is kind. Do tell. I do indeed. (laughs) I do indeed say clear is kind. But you have to take it uh, one step back first. Because often in businesses, what happens is that people give feedback in the, the mom sense, where they say, oh, no, that was great. What you did was fantastic, trying to pump the ego and uh, make people feel good about themselves so that they will excel in that sense. But the reality is, is that you're not pushing people to be better. And candid feedback is what's needed. Now, there's, there nothing more, that... there's nothing more, sorry, Kevin, there's nothing more crippling than politeness when it comes to feedback. You don't need to be cruel. You should never be cruel when it comes to feedback, but politeness disguises the learning opportunity, I suspect. You are absolutely correct in that. And uh, often people see candid feedback as negative or a personal attack. And we need to get past that. 
But one of the main things that you need in order to get that right is two things, trust and respect. You need to have trust and respect with the people so that they can be honest about their thoughts and opinions of whatever it is you might be doing. Okay. How does, what is the difference between clear is kind and candid and respectful feedback? There's a very delicate balance because you may think that you're being incredibly candid, kind and respectful. And I may be having a bit of a rough day and perceive you to be a vicious bullying basket case. I was going to use a different word, but you know where I was going. Yes, I do. Uh, 100% do. Now, the, the way, because I'm a trainer at Missing Link, and uh, part of my job is to give feedback. A lot of the time, candid feedback. And these are people that I have to build trust and respect with relatively quickly, because I'm only with them for a short amount of time, like a day or three days at a time. So the way that I've built out the way I give my candid feedback is a three-phase approach. And this is something that Missing Link does uh, for all of its trainers. The first thing that we do is we ask the person how they felt they do. The second, then you get them to unpack. And more often than not, a lot of the downfalls or things that they think they failed at come out in that. A great question to ask here is, have you felt that you've done your best work? And more often than that, people will say that they haven't. And then they will give a harsher crit of themselves before you have to. The second thing that you need to do is then talk to the peers, the peers around them that'll give them constructive feedback. These people will often give the, the mom type of uh, content where it'll be, I think you did exceptionally well in this area. You failed a little bit in that area. And then the last part is that you give the higher person, maybe a boss, or in my case, the head trainer, I would give my feedback constructively as, uh, as much as possible because you need to make sure that the, the things that they did right are highlighted, but also that the things that they've done wrong are highlighted, highlighted so that when they go forward, their future self is more prepared for whatever it is that they're stepping into. How often do you come across people who are disillusioned about their own abilities? They deliver a performance which is catastrophic. Um, it doesn't hit the right note. It has got the wrong tone. Um, they are ill-prepared. They are not going to succeed unless they get a brutal reality check. And when you ask them how they did, they go, yep, I think I did fabulously. All of my slides with all of the tiny numbers nobody could see were okay because I explained them like an accountant. And I know that you guys avoid that sort of thing. And their peers are sort of going, well, yeah, no, that was very, you did, I loved your tie. That's very nice. Uh, it's then up to you as the head trainer to be the bad guy. Do you play bad cop? Yes, uh, you have to. Because, uh, unfortunately or not, most people pump themselves up. It's a, it's a condition that humans do. We, we have a better idea of ourselves in mind. And this is something that's backed up in, by the Neuro Leadership Institute, that we always think we're doing better than we actually are. But by getting that candid feedback by someone who you trust and respect will always kind of take you down a peg or two, but... It'll make you so much better going forward. And th the way that I like to think of it is uh, it's the spinach in the teeth analogy. Would you rather having uh, your spinach in your teeth, someone tell you at the end of the day or just after you've had lunch? Correct. More than not, 
Yeah, you want it as soon as you possibly can. And that is my job. My job is to make sure that I tell them right up front to like, listen, I know this is going to be uncomfortable, but I'm going to give you the feedback right so that you can be, I'm future-proofing you now so that you're the best version of yourself later. And so it's something that we always have to be cognizant of. So here is something I saw online in one of the videos that sort of pops up onto your feeds and stuff. Never ask for feedback if you're asking for feedback people are going to give you the mom feedback they're going to go oh well that was lovely you know you, you it's so good and you did and you speak so beautifully and that's not giving you what you want um the better way to ask for feedback is not give me feedback which is broad and generic and allows lots of rabbit holes for people you are hoping will give you honest feedback to to hide in if you say I really enjoy doing that, but I would like your advice on how to make it better. Opens a whole new permission stream for those people you are hoping will give you feedback that has integrity to it, rather than say the more blanket feedback. Yes. So there's two ways I'd answer that. One is absolutely yes. Asking people is good. And the quote that you said is actually only half of the quote. So it says, uh, ask for feed- don't ask for feedback if you're not willing to hear it, but don't ask for feedback from someone you'd never take advice from. So that's part one. I heard a different part version, two, but I like yours. I like yours. Yes, good. The part two of that is when you ask for feedback, make sure that the person you're asking feedback from has an understanding that says, listen, I am paying you. Let's just imagine that I am paying you to give me critical feedback here. I would like no holes barred feedback on how you actually thought I did, whether it be speaking, whether it be a job or a report that you had to do. But you have to get the person's mindset right. You can't just ask them for feedback. You need to ask them for feedback in a way that says, I've given you money for this. You need to, I need a return on that investment of that money that I've paid to you. And that changes the mindset of how people give feedback, which is really awesome. Because there is an assumption that when I've asked you for feedback, all I'm asking for is affirmation that I'm wonderful. Not the honest return of information that will make me better. And that is the critical element of going full circle back to candid feedback. Now, when it comes to running teams and running people, this is, we've been talking about presentations and stuff. When you've got a team of people who are working together, allowing minuscule failures to slide and allowing bad habits to develop rather than nipping nasty habits in the bud and doing it as quickly as possible and doing it without, before you get agitated and irritated. Um, Regular candid feedback is more important than just feedback or candid feedback. Regularity becomes important. How do you give regular candid feedback without being a nitpicking, dreadful person. I, I like the way you pondered on, on, on getting that through. But Do you know it, which word I was going to use. You knew which word I, I was going to use. I know, but I'm going to, re- I'm, I'm going to refrain from it and move swiftly along. Uh, it, it, if you think about it, it's the teams that disagree regularly, the ones that who debate on different plans of action, the ones that share candidly what they think best for the team or company that end up including the majority of your A players. That's where all of that detail comes through. And that's where you are able to help people bring out that candid feedback.
The big thing is, is that it has to come from a management level. There's a great saying that says the fish rots from the head down. As soon as management does it, the other people feel the ability to do it as well. But Thank the you. This is on the receiver. No, absolutely. If you're not willing to take it, don't ask the question. Oh, hello, can I get some feedback? Do you really want feedback? Okay. Yes. Well, as you asked. <laughs> Shame. Yes, it can be tough, especially if you're a waiter and the kitchen's let you down. Don't ask the question you don't want the answer to. Kevin Dyke, thank you. The head trainer at Missing Link this evening. Regular, candid feedback. That is certainly business unusual. The flexibility to upscale or downscale your workforce with ease gives your business the edge it needs to thrive in a fast-paced and unpredictable economic and climate. Let an award-winning staffing partner manage your personnel needs. Unlock the edge by going to workforcestaffing.co.za and choose the industry with which you need help and start a mutually beneficial partnership today the money show consumer ninja would you i mean we're talking about advice this evening it's quite fortuitous wendy nola our consumer ninja we will go to a financial advisor we will go to a legal advisor we will go to a medical advisor otherwise known as a doctor and we will expect open and honest feedback we will (laughs) speak to our boss and ask for open and honest feedback and expect a compliment or our spouse or our friends Uh, but when we go for legal advice we are looking for uh, some some clarity. We're looking for some honest answers as to what our options are if we're in a dis- dispute with somebody, for example. The trouble with legal advice nowadays, yes, you can get it free, but at the moment it's coming from a bot. And I'm not sure that I am ready for this, Wendy. Well, I think it was inevitable, Bruce, and, and obviously it has its small little place. So I heard uh, a few days ago that legal and tax which is an authorized fsp providing legal expense insurance and legal to act have just launched an ai lawyer using the open ai chat gbt framework and the south african legal system to provide what it calls accurate insights and it's via whatsapp if you don't mind so general manager Darren Cohen stresses that the AI lawyer isn't a fully-fledged lawyer, well, he would have to, but that it has, quote, been contextualized to provide answers that align with the South African legal system. And then, of course, he adds, it is recommended that users check in with a qualified legal and tax professional before making any legal decisions. In other words, any legal profession, professional, but, um, you know, it's his press release. Um, so at the moment, the AI lawyer on legal and tax or that they provide is free to use other than our data cost, of course. But in time, he doesn't specify, it will be available on a subscription basis and to existing legal and tax legal plan clients who are already paying. Have he says, you We're confident. played with it? Have you tested it? Because I've, I've just tested AI programs and some of it is really, really good. And some yes. of it is abysmal, especially when it comes to facts. Well, now, when I'm going to ask a legal bot for advice, I want it to be fast and first and foremost focused on facts. Well, yes. So I gave it quite a quite a, a good test, quite a tricky test, because consumer um, law is, is a little, um, yeah, some of it, is not actually in the act. It was supplied afterwards by the commission, but they never amended the act. And so I thought, okay, let me test it. Um, I'd asked it a series of consumer rights related questions. 
it was a bit of a mixed bag. It was lacking in some answers and in others, actually quite oppressive. So I got a very good answer to am I legally entitled to access to a call recording of my um, contractual conversation with a company? And they came back with a um, popular-related answer. If a company records a conversation with you, they must inform you that it is being recorded for the and for the purpose it's being recorded, and you have the right to access the recording and to request that any inaccurate or incomplete information must be corrected. What it doesn't say is that while the Consumer Protection Act says only that companies who record these conversations that pertain to our contract rela- contractual relationships with them. It only requires them to retain the recordings of those conversations, which is not fair at all, and they've never corrected it. But the commission, the National uh, Consumer Commission, uh, the then Commissioner Ibrahim Mohammed, did say that consumers must be given access to such recordings in the event of of a dispute, and I've quoted him relentlessly on that. But, of course, that would be expecting a bit much of a bot, I think, to find that information out there and put it into their answer. So it's a half mark there, I suppose. But it was completely thrown by a question that I get asked a lot by consumers, and that is, can a company refuse to offer to honor the Consumer Protection Act warranty if I don't have the product's original packaging, right? If you don't have the box for your TV and it goes wrong in the first place. It is. It is a stupid rule. No. So anyway, the answer I got was – uh, something went, it seems as if something went wrong. Let's try again. Please read up the yes. questions. I thought, okay, and I did. And I got the same answer. So if you're wondering what the answer is, no, they can't deny you your warranty protection in the first six months because that belongs to the CPA. But after that, for month seven, the supplier's voluntary warranty kicks in and they can, of course, impose whatever terms and conditions they want. And most of them, if not all of them, say you have to have proof of purchase and you have to have the box. In other words, keep the box. Um, I then asked, um, do online retail sites have to disclose their physical address? So that was a straightforward question. And the bot was brilliant. Yes, online retail sites are required to disclose their physical address. In South Africa, the Electronic Communications and Transactions Act requires that any person who conducts business through a website must provide certain information, including their full name and legal status, physical address, and contact details including phone. So that was absolutely right. So if you wanted to ask that question, you couldn't be disappointed. Um, and of course, all the answers are followed by if you want more detail or if you're having any problems, you can um, get hold of someone at Legal it and Tax. So, okay, yes, it's free. So I suppose you get the plug. Um, it was also spot on with, um, I asked it about how, how does lay-by work in South Africa? And the answer was brilliant, especially the bit about you can cancel at any time and you can, they can only penalize you by um, deducting from, uh, from what you've paid them 1% of the retail price. I, I've been banging this drum for a long time. It's the most consumer-friendly way to buy. And the bot got that brilliantly. And then the last hurdle, it failed because I asked it the most the question that trips up most consumers and that is, does the Consumer Protection Act entitle me to a refund if I return a product? And, of course, it is the ultimate test because it depends on the circumstances. But the bot told me, yes, the CPA does entitle you to a refund if you return a product. It, the, the Act provides consumers with the right to return goods for any reason within a period of six months after the date of purchase, provided that the goods mm. are in the original condition and packaging. Wrong. Gong. Naught. 
Um, that's not true. Um, you only get uh, – <laughs> if you buy something in a physical shop, you only get to take it back if there's something wrong with it. You don't get to change your mind. You don't get to get a negative review from somebody at home saying we don't like it, doesn't suit you. If you only get a cooling off period, if you buy online or as a result of direct marketing, it's in other words, someone sent you an email or phoned you or whatever. If you take out a cell phone contract, you've got five uh, working days a week to say, I changed my mind. But if you go into a cell phone shop and take out the contract, no cooling off period. I, I don't know why anybody would put them through the process of signing up for two cell phone contracts consecutively. <laughs> so well, I think it, cell phone companies yeah. are quite safe on that front, yeah. Exactly. But um, what I'm saying is if you did one or the other, I, that's why I say don't take out a, a – um, anyway, let's not go into that. But, yeah, I've been banging this drum about what your rights are, the right of return. It's the most common question I get all day, every day. And, I, I, I mean, that's for 12 years I've been doing it since the act <laughs> came into our lives. And I'm a bit cross with the bot that he couldn't find one of those references yeah. somewhere and include that in the answer. And if that's what the bot's giving out, it's no wonder the consumer's – are so confused because they're obviously Googling it and coming uh, up with the wrong answer and thinking they've got rights that they haven't got. But all in all, you know, something a bit of an interesting addition. Um, I don't think I'm going to be out of a job anytime soon because so. clearly the bot's not going to be able to answer people who email me in their, in their droves uh, and give them useful information. But, yes, on basic questions – worth a will. I, I did like the fact, there are two points I want to make here, before I let you go, Wendy, um, you referred to him as he, especially when he is incapable of yes, delivering an well, answer I you want. it should be gender neutral, not and, and they, they. The, the other <laughs> one is, um, this is terribly clever of legal and tax, because what they're doing is, yes, they're offering it to customers and prospective customers for nothing. Yes, it is imperfect. Yeah, it opens the gateway to acquire more customers because it's not adequate and you can't be 100% sure that it is absolutely correct and invariably when it comes to more complex cases um, you are going to need some human advice that can be a little bit more proactive because things like chat gpt only are able to respond to the questions you ask they can't give you context they can't give you nuance not yet they can't give you ifs buts and maybes in the same way as a human lawyer saying you're perfectly within your rights you are correct but you may still lose the case if you take this one to court um, exactly. And I'm not too sure that I'm not too sure that exactly. that digital yeah. channels will do that. But I do think that a lot of the questions, the emails I get, um, I could give a very simple answer, and it would be nice if I could just <laughs> give it over to a bot to do for me. But most of it, I mean, ninety percent of it, no. But I do think it was an inevitable use of this technology, and as you say, it's a gateway. Uh, to well, if anything, it makes you sort of appreciate the the nuance and complexity that we human beings can bring to a to a situation that the bots, for now anyway, are, are simply unable to. Thank you, Wendy Nola. Wendy is our consumer ninja on a Wednesday night. The free legal advice from a bot: Would you take it, or would you not? The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield is brought to you by APSA CIB. The 2023 Global Finance Accolades bear testament to the confidence that APSA's clients place in their commitment to delivering relevant and innovative products and client solutions. APSA is a registered FSP. 
The Money Show. Shapeshifters. Tonight, Shapeshifters had a varied career from being a gardener to being a civil servant, a chef, a driver, a pilot. And most recently, after that illustrious career since 2010, has been Dean and Business School Director at Henley Business School. His name is John Foster Pedley. You emerged out of the United Kingdom, but uh, talk to me about those early years, John, about growing up in the United Kingdom. This is a, um, a, a, a product of the, the 60s, I guess. Earth to John. Hi, Bruce. Ground yeah, thanks. Sorry there we go. Ground, ground control yeah, yeah, yeah. to Major John. There you are. Yeah, I was stunned by your intro, so I kept it quiet. <laughs> um, <laughs> but thank you very much. Yes, it's true. I, I was um, British. I was born in a military family, very middle class, private schools, and went through the whole process, joined the Royal Air Force. And then went to study in London in the um, late 60s, early 70s, when everything was very different. And it was like an epiphany for me. I mean, how much there was in the world, how little I knew, how constrained there was by my background, and a confusing time as well. So I dropped out of all that, and I did multiple jobs for a few years, exploring, traveling, uh, growing my hair, doing everything that people did in the, in the early 70s, I suppose. And much of the horror of my parents, of course, for them, um, and but it was a, a really good time to to find more about the world that I, I knew so little about, and I was educated not to be part of. And then yes, I did, uh, and it was a, an important time. It, it, it brought me in touch with uh, you know the differences in class and race and diversity, but also what the world was made of. Not from my privileged background, but a very different and very intriguing, and very wonderful world. Um, Did you have quite, a, quite a, a sheltered upbringing? Yeah, it was sheltered in its own way. I mean, uh, we, we had a very strong ethos of service, of uh, accountability, integrity, um, working hard, um, being honest, being very honest indeed. So it was sheltered in that way, but it was very much class-ridden, uh, very middle class. And, and Britain is very, very classist and, and remains so to this day, I think. And, and it's hard to bust out of that. And, and I did. I, I became you know, deliberately working class, if you like, for a while, doing all sorts of things. And it was an incredibly enriching period. And uh, that breaking out in the 20s allowed me to understand a lot more about the world and particularly to engage with the world I was living. I was brought up outside in nature, a lot of that. And that stuck with me through my whole life. And I had a deep respect for my parents and their ethos. Um, and I also had a deep respect for the country and the land and the world I lived in. But I was fairly unworldly. I didn't know much about business. I didn't know much about money. didn't know much about politics. I didn't know much about society. But I did know quite a lot about nature, the world, and the yeah. sense of integrity, if you like. The like many military com- uh, many military families, many military families, of course, travelled all over the world. Particularly in those years, the Cold War would see people moving from base to base to base, uh, and a bit of an adventure. Did you, though, you didn't have that sort of military upbringing, did you? No, I was born on an air force station, and we went out to Malaysia during the troubles then. And I just remember the sort of handover of colonial power with these magnificent sort of ceremonies. I must have been about six or seven when that happened, but it was stuck in my brain. And um, 
So I, I do remember those years very clearly, but we were under the oppression of the Cold War. It was very clear. In fact, my, my elder brother went on to be a, a nuclear bomber pilot in Vulcans, actually. But I remember as a kid, we were worried. We were worried about a nuclear attack. We were, and, you know, and the resonance of what's going on now with Russia and Ukraine is, you know, is quite, quite difficult to engage with because it was very disturbing for a young person to live in that. And I feel sorry for the kids growing up now in Poland and in Estonia and Lithuania, in fact, anywhere around those activities, because they must be feeling the same. And I also feel terribly sorry for kids growing up now who, who and I, I'm a late dad of an 18-year-old and a 16-year-old, and they say, well, you know, there won't be a world when we're 35, 40, dad. You know, we're going to all burn up. And now that's not going to happen. We're going to fight it. But the fact that they fear that and that, 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 that determines their sense of what they're going into deeply troubles me and makes me think, what must we do? What is our position now? What must we step up for? You know, if you're, if you're older, um, what are you going to stand up for? What are you going to do for your kids and your grandchildren? Yeah. Are you just going to let it happen and be fatalistic and say, oh, I can't do anything about it? Or, or somebody else will sort it out or the United Nations will do it or Greenpeace <laughs> will do it or the neighbours will do it. Somebody else always steps up to do it. We can sit here comfortably in our uh, running the air conditioner in the diesel truck um, and we'll be absolutely fine. You are, therefore, a university dropout, correct? Uh, if my, I, I, I am, I am a university dropout. I, I absolutely Do you am. recommend I'm, that? I don't recommend it to my kids at all now, not whatsoever. <laughs> um, I, I've quite turned the corner on that one, but... For my time and in my days and where I sat and with the adventure that we had with the Vietnam War process, the hippie eras, the consciousness engagement, the growth of diversity, the thrilling breaking down of constraints and of, of race and gender and engaging with people across borders. It was a heady time. It was an exciting time. And, uh, um, but it wasn't an easy time because you could very much living on your own, very self-sustaining very little material goods and whatever. But uh, I found a lot of lot of depth in that. It wasn't quite, you know, down and out in London and Paris, you know, that sort of thing. But it was very much a time of, you know, putting aside strong material achievement and looking to see what else was in life. And when I came back into the world later, it served me well, I think, um, in most respects. You have a deep passion for flying. You grow up on an Air Force base, of course. You um, qualify as a pilot. You fly for many years. You do join the Royal Air Force for a while as well. What did you fly? Well, I, I went, um, I did a flying, I did gliding at 16. I had a flying scholarship at 17, uh, went solo. And then I went in the Air Force in about 18 or 19 to military academy, training on chipmunks and um, uh, mostly and just early training then. Uh, Those are helicopters, right? Chipmunks are these... these no, 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 chipmunks. No. Sorry, I'm so sorry. So okay. chipmunks are a single-engine monoplane. Oh, okay. Uh, tail, tail wheel, wonderful to fly, slightly aerobatic. And I just had an absolute ball in that. And I was very naturally adept for flying, so it came easy to me. And um, and then I... Oh, went that's to a university. beautiful little aircraft. It's a really yeah, you know, it's dainty... Like, it's a dainty little thing, yes. It's beautiful. Yeah, it's, it's lovely. It flies beautifully. It's delicate. You can do wonderful aerobatics in it, and um, you can kind of bond with it. And a bit, bit Jonathan Livingston seagull is. You can mm. really feel it part of you as you dip around, glides, and do gentle aerobatics. It's almost I, I, I looked... Feel- 
I looked at it and I thought, oh, it looks a bit like the Harvard. And I see it's made by de Havilland, the same company that made the Harvard. So um, there, there is a connection. There's a connection there. But how does somebody then who grows up on an Air Force base, goes to his middle class and goes through the schooling system in the UK, which is very good, who then gets the opportunity to study in London and drops out, who then has a pushback against the British class system, which is notoriously dreadful, uh, then goes and becomes a chef and a gardener and a civil servant for a bit and a driver and a pilot and does all of these things. How do you eventually get into education because that's a pretty circuitous route to anywhere really i think in my life i always i when i was in my 20s and i moved into doing those multiple jobs we people moved in their search for consciousness away from those time that people did they experimented with um you know different substances was a very typical thing in those times and then people wanted to meditate and find a way or whatever it was. It was a big move to go to India. You, you remember the hippie trails. And the, and the drive behind that was, was really quite pure. It wasn't purely hedonistic at all. There was a lot of it was really a sense, particularly the disciplined ones. And I think I suppose I do fall in that category, which you really wanted to do something to, to see what was driving your life. What was going on in here? What, what was compelling you? Was it neurotic drive to succeed or was it something that was within you? And I always felt that I had to go, I had to quieten my mind and see what came up for me in terms of the direction I wanted to do next. And what I, when I was about 28, I decided, well, enough of all this. I'm now going to, I'm fairly good at selling things. I'm really, I'm okay as a pilot. So I'm going to sell aeroplanes. And I got a job selling little used aeroplanes. And I said, well, now I feel I want to be a pilot. I went into flying and, and the way through that was flying instruction. When I started flying instruction, it was like coming home. They, they, to have, be in an aircraft and help somebody else achieve and get the same love of them and this, that time of my life, full flying, the control. In fact, bizarrely, today is National World Pilots Day, and even more bizarrely, my 18-year-old daughter went solo for the first time at Grand Central today. So the whole thing's going full congratulations circle. Congratulations to congratulations yeah. to your daughter. That's yeah. and congratulations. <laughs> for surviving it. <laughs> it must be terrifying. Um, John, I would ask you to pause there just for a moment because I, I do sure, want to sure. get to um, how you, you get through all of these wonderful phases of life and um, you get into flying uh -huh. instruction and then you get into running a business school. Huh? Not making the connection yet, but we will. John Foster Pedley. I'll, I'll, the, you, I'll take you through that, yeah. The dean <laughs> and director at the Henley Business School. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield is brought to you by APSA CIB. The 2023 Global Finance Accolades bear testament to the confidence that APSA's clients place in their commitment to delivering relevant and innovative products and client solutions. APSA is a registered FSP. The Money Show. Shapeshifters. John Foster Pedley, Dean and Director at the Henley Business School. How do you finally get into education as the university dropout who loves empowering people to reach their dreams. Yeah, so after flying, I decided I didn't want to go to major airlines. I'm not quite sure why. I think there was something pulling me to do a lot more, and particularly in business. So I joined British Aerospace selling airliners in Africa and the Middle East. That was an incredible job. Very complex, very high, very high level sales. I was, I was a regional guy for that. And then I, I felt lost. I felt that I'd left my education and, and I, I really wanted it. 
And I just had this pull to do an MBA, not because I, partly because I, everyone was using jargon and I wanted to armor myself up about it, but it was something deeper. It was something like I really wanted to educate myself. I also wanted to validate my intelligence, if you like, by getting a qualification. Um, and I really relate to people in South Africa who've been excluded from education and who feel that. And it's something I really resonate with people here. So I didn't, I was very lucky. I got paid to do, you know, full salary, probably the most expensive MBA in Europe then at a place called Ashridge. Um, and while I was doing part-time flying, I was an aerobatic pilot doing competition aerobatics and a lot of, after having been an airline pilot before that. And then during the MBA that um, was sponsored by a tremendous guy, you know, you all know Abfab, absolutely fabulous, Jennifer yes. Saunders. It was, actually, it was her dad, Tom Saunders, <laughs> who put me through. Tremendous guy. Why? What, what was the connection? Well, because he was my boss. He was an ex-pilot and he was oh, my I boss. And, and somehow he saw something in me that... Uh, you know, I get it now because when now I'm teaching, I look at people and you've seen so many people achieve. You look at them and you just say, wow, this person can really go somewhere. You can't even say why, but you look at them and say, I'm going to commit to getting that person to understand what they can do. And so I did an MBA. That was like coming home. And I said, well, I must start teaching. I, I didn't want to let go. So I walked into a, a business school in, in, South, in the UK and there was this South African there, Ralph Stacey. He turned out to be a global complexity theorist um <laughs> which most people don't even understand he's a tremendous guy leader in the field of complexity theory and management uh, he died a couple of years ago and he gave me a job said okay you do the straight stuff you teach these guys strategy on your undergrads and i'll carry on doing my clever stuff on the mba then he pulled me in to teach the mba that was like coming home as well i just loved engaging um and not telling people what to do but giving people multiple options and helping them thread their way through until they found their opinion, their thinking, their framework of thought. And I tried to reinforce that so that they could build kind of theories of life. And I just, I don't know why, I just got such a, such an amazing, um, you know, engagement from that. It was just tremendous to see people grow and finding themselves, finding their intellect. Um, and I then, then went to France. Uh, yeah. yeah, go ahead. No, 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 you carry on. Yours is much more interesting. No, I went to France to do a joint venture as a, I was not, I'd been a pretty senior executive in British Aerospace. I went as a marketing director for a subsidiary of Airbus, setting up a college in the European, uh, a European aerospace venture between all these people to kind of build, um, salespeople and commercial people in competition with the American aerospace industry. And that was a startup. Again, tremendous. Um, I was able to build that up with some, you know, very, with a Frenchman and Italian. A German and me, we were the directors. And if you think the complexities of South African cultures are difficult, you try it with that lot. It was it was absolutely <laughs> mind-boggling. And then and then I decided, you know, that came to end. Things had changed in South Africa. I'd been a pilot in South Africa. And I decided I want when Mandela came out, again, I just had an urge to come back. And I, I can't and I spent a lot of time trying to connect with where they come from. And they're often very deep sort of drives, which you mostly subdue. But I've, I suppose I have really kind of followed those. And I wanted to come back to South Africa. I was angry, if you like, about what had happened, my ignorance about colonialization, about apartheid, my lack of conscientization. And it was growing and growing all the time. And I really felt that I wanted to come back, not, not as somebody to come and give, but somebody to come and learn, because I felt I had so much to go. I've always felt that, Africa is unfrozen, frozen parts of me. And I've, I've felt it's been an enormous gift. 
And I have a magnificent, really great gratitude for the culture in Africa and the people in Africa, many of them that I've seen to do that. Um, and I just was drawn back to teach at UCT. I, I, I was teaching strategy there on the MBA 15 years. I designed and uh, was the first director of the executive MBA. And then I, I really enjoyed that being on the cusp between neither a true academic nor a true manager, but as a the person who sets up these programs and sets the stage for people to form. I, I head up at Zekad there. I went to New Zealand to run an incubator, an entrepreneurship program. I'm exhausted. Um, How are you? I mean, yeah. <laughs> we, we, we've, got, we've got to wrap it all up now, John. But, I mean, it's a fascinating tapestry. And I suppose all of that then comes to the fore in 30 seconds as a dean with incredible global depth and experience and variety of experience rather than, with all respect to lovely academics, a, a dry academic perspective on the world. Well, what it does is when you're dealing with managers, you're dealing with people excluded, you have an absolute drive to give them what you had, to get them to understand their minds, to get them to grow, to get them to have an epiphany so that they can thrive as independent people with incredible confidence. It annoys me that people in Africa don't understand how really capable they are and, and the effect of you know, colonization, mind, whatever you want to call it, it annoys me. And it really, I have a, a passion if you like, to, to change that, to give people opportunity and to build a much better world through intelligent application of your mind and also brave application of your actions. And I get inspired by the people I work with here and I wouldn't change it for anything. It's an incredible opportunity. What a wonderful tale, well told. Thank you, John Foster Pedley. He is the uh, Dean and Director at the Henley Business School.